0: Hi, this is Michael Sholingo, and you're listening to One Montville Unites. Thanks for joining One Montville Unites. Tonight, we have Christopher Butchko from Montville Township High School. We're going to talk about his role in the community and the high school, um, some of the achievements he's done in the course of the past years in his role, some things leading into Black History Month about racism, prejudice, and some historical examples as they relate to Christopher's um, class and, uh, in Montville Township High School.
1: So uh, welcome Christopher, how are you? Thank you very much, Michael. Um, it's my pleasure to be on One Montville tonight. Glad to have you. Hi, Bonsri, how are you?
2: Good,
0: how are you guys? Doing great, thanks. Doing very a little good. depressed about the snow, but <laughs> March, March is coming, we'll have no more snow, snow soon. Yeah, soon.
2: So, uh,
0: so
1: Christopher, tell us about your um, what you do in the high school. I am a teacher of Holocaust and Genocide Studies for the previous 13 years at Montville Township High School. Um, It is a full-year elective course that is mostly taken by seniors and a few juniors. Um, It is my pride and joy, and it is an absolute pleasure to teach this class to the students of Montville. I am also the class advisor. I have been the class advisor for the class of 2014, 2018, 2019, and currently for the class of 2023. And I am the 2020, 2021 Morris County Teacher of the Year. Congratulations. Wow. That.
2: Congratulations. That's a huge, thank huge achievement.
1: <laughs> it's a tough year to do it in. Uh. Yes, very, but it's it's been such an honor. It's something I never ever thought I would ever get. And so when it happened, it was it was quite a surprise.
2: Well, you know, from what we've heard, the students love you, the teachers love you. So it's I'm sure it's well deserved.
1: Thank you very much
2: um so you um do how many students in the like in a i don't even know how many students are in a a given class in the high school but how many students probably take your class out of like what is the class size like 300 i always
1: have more than 100 students so many students want to take the course holocaust and genocide studies that I'm usually never the only teacher that actually um, instructs the course. There's oh, one of my coworkers in the social studies department always teaches along with me, so we always have more than a hundred students uh, taking oh. the class every year.
2: Wow! So even though it's an elective, I mean, one third, like a very decent portion of the the class takes it. That's great. A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Um, and we've heard that you've you've done some really amazing things with your students. Um, can you tell us about some of the things you guys have done? I know you have gone the- to. Sure gone
1: abroad with them oh yes i'm a real believer in you know real world hands-on experiences Mm -hmm. every single year i always take my students on a trip to the u.s holocaust memorial museum in washington dc it is the it's the biggest museum dedicated to the holocaust in the western hemisphere Um, it's a long day but it's well worth it because Mm -hmm. my students get to take a tour of everything that museum has to offer and see stuff that they could barely ever see anyplace else. They can actually see the real striped pajamas that was used in the concentration camps. They can actually go into an, a boxcar that was used to transport to their deaths. There's there's almost nothing that I could do that compares to it. So I'd like to bring as many students as well that I can over also, to Also, my greatest achievement ever has been bringing over 100 Montville Township High School students over to Europe over a period of six different summers, I have offered this to my students, where I take my students over to see all the plays that we talk about in our class in real life. So now I get to take my students on a personal tour of Auschwitz. I, I can't imagine ever topping that. That that's <laughs> it's it's the greatest thing I've ever done as a teacher, and I. And believe me, it's the most stressful thing I've also ever done as a teacher, <laughs> but I keep on doing it. <laughs> so, and hope hopefully I will be able to do that again. you know, we'll see hopefully in two thousand twenty two and we'll we'll see how things go now
2: <laughs> yeah, there's there's really no better way of learning than than oh. seeing things for your eyes. Mm-hmm. it's it's. There's nothing that compared. They'll remember those things so much Absolutely. more than they'll remember the lessons in your class, class or any class for sure.
1: I realize them I can't take all my students. So what we do is when we go over to Europe, every single place we go, we take the video cameras and we film everything we go to. And when we come back home, I then take all the video footage and I edit it and I create what I call an in-classroom field trip, where when we talk about Auschwitz. I could show my students an in-class field trip to Auschwitz where they see me and other students that they know from previous grades, literally give them a tour of Auschwitz. And it's I have dozens of these in-class field trips. I use them all the time. I have posted them on YouTube. Uh, my uh-huh. YouTube page is the letter C. My first name is Chris C Butchko. If you type that in YouTube, you could see my videos and take the in-class field trips yourself. Uh-huh. Um, I've also, I have, been, be I have have a master's degree in Holocaust and genocide studies. I obtained my master's degree in Holocaust studies from King University, and my thesis was developing a workbook for my students in my class. Unfortunately, we don't have a workbook that fits Holocaust and genocide studies, so I created my own. And it's a five-chapter workbook wow. that's designed to have my students understand why the Holocaust happened. And I integrate many of my in-class field trips into my workbook.
2: And Amazing. yeah, that sounds like a really worthwhile um, kind of project oh, for absolutely. students to explore. It
1: it, has, it tells a story to students of understanding why. You know, Who was this guy, yeah. Adolf Hitler? Why did he get people to join his Nazi party? Why did he get millions of Germans to vote for his Nazi party? And then most important of all, trying to understand why would people help Adolf Hitler carry out the Holocaust? What was going on in their minds when they're doing this? Those are the critical questions that my students and I investigate.
0: When you and I first chatted um, about doing this episode together, uh, you, you talked about racism and so how you start class off. And, and I thought it was really compelling, especially, you know, we talk about, uh, we've been talking about Black History Month, Bansri and I, uh, for the past few weeks, in February's Black History Month, and racism has taken a tone of, and uh, in, 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 in alongside um, Black culture for its, its history in the United States. And I, I, I really liked when we talked about that section of your class and how you educate students starting from the point of, you talk about the Holocaust from its inception, from the point of what is racism.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. In September, my first unit deals with prejudice and racism in labeling people. We go over certain definitions. On the very first day of school, I asked my students, raise your hand if you are a prejudiced person. And at about 20, I get about four or five. Oh. And because my wow. student, well, because many people don't realize what prejudice is. Prejudice is having mm-hmm. an opinion or a thought that creates judgment on something. And I tell my students, so um, you don't have any opinions or a thought that creates judgment on anything? Are you telling me a... <laughs> You know, when you go to a restaurant, you open the menu and say, "Okay," to the waiter, you have no opinions. No, you Mm -hmm. you know, it's your own personal prejudices. You like McDonald's over Burger King or Coca-Cola over Pepsi or you like to go to Florida, not California. And I tell my students, we're every single one of us is prejudiced. We all have our own personal biases. And that's the Mm -hmm. first thing that all of us must realize. Um, years ago, I used to take my students on a field trip to the Museum of Tolerance in New York City. And they had they had a great exhibit there where they had two doors. And one door was labeled, if you're prejudiced, walk through it. And the other door was, if you're not prejudiced, walk through that door. And little do the students know, the door where it's not prejudiced is locked. You can't open it. <laughs> it's, it's designed to help students realize we're all prejudiced. We all have you know, these thoughts in our heads that creates judgment, you know, favoring something over. You. And then we get to racism. And I explained to him how racism is when you have a thought that puts a certain group of people in a superior or inferior position towards another group of people. And it's amazing how much I see that today as well. And it, it goes well beyond race or creed or color um i mean i think all of us at some point have put down some other group out there for instance mm. people of a different political party affiliation you know that that's just happened all the time in america today right one yeah. person they're putting down everybody who's in that other political party group they're labeling entire sections of the american population as somehow inferior to them we see it all the time happening in our country today unfortunately
2: we we do from from ev- like i don't i think almost everyone i know probably myself like have kind of caught like maybe missed that <laughs> missed themselves doing that because it's just so easy and it's just every like Everything we read has made all of us so much more kind of extreme in our own thinking that it's so much easier to judge those who don't share that because we've just all become more like you know we all kind of live in our own individual bubble of confirmation bias you know so we
1: also talk about my class of why do people do this why do people do why do people call each other names why do people bring down Entire groups of people. And because I, I explained to them very simply, it's all people do this to make themselves feel better about themselves. Yeah. By believing an entire section of the American people is somehow less than them. It makes them feel better. Like they know more. They don't, they're not falling victim to this, mm-hmm. this type of way of thinking out there. They know better. It makes them feel better about themselves. I teach my students that. I, I don't think we could ever eliminate prejudice. We can never eliminate people having opinions. But the key is if you catch yourself while you're doing that, then you're winning half the battle. Realizing it when you're doing it yourself. I've done it. I've done it a few times myself. Um, I'll never forget many years ago. In addition to a teacher, I'm also a numismatist. I collect coins. <laughs> and and um, I was at a I was at a coin show in Connecticut a number of years ago, and they were having this uh, a certain numismatic related company was having this big offer, and everyone was getting in lines. And there was an older gentleman; he must have been at least in his eighties. That was standing near me, and he t- he turned around to me and he yelled at me, saying, "There's a line here, you know." And I didn't know what he was talking about because he wasn't in the line, so. And about 30 seconds later, he cuts right in front of me. And he goes, I was here first. There's a line. And in my head, I just, I start to call him some pretty bad names. And I begin to put him Mm -hmm. down because he's some old guy. And it hit me. Realized it. I said to myself, Chris, what are you doing? You're putting him down. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to bring yourself up. And it's exactly what you're teaching in your classroom. I caught myself. And I use that example in many of my classes to say, hey, if you catch yourself doing it, if you realize you're doing it, that's winning half the battle, guys. Realizing when your personal prejudices come out. That's amazing. I, I feel
2: like you should teach this class to, like,
1: <laughs> adults too, to,
2: you know, because, yeah, th- this is the thing. Like, we you know, for a lot of people last year's, like all the events last summer, the whole Black Lives Matter, just all that stuff has made us sort of self-reflect and try to figure out like, wait, are are we kind of like a little bit racist, you know? And, um, I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I, there have been times where I'm like, you know what? Like I've had some misconceptions that I need to, you know, like figure out, like rethink, because it's just, you know, I really need to, I, I didn't realize that I, you know, I had some biases that were just completely ill-founded. But what you mentioned is that, you know, yes, we all have them, but the really important thing is to recognize recognize them and you know accept that okay I have bias and that's terrible but let me grow let me let me learn let me see how I can kind of overcome that you know and um it's great that you teach students this it's a really important lesson and I think you know for adults we can't really take your course but there are you know anyone listening there are implicit bias quizzes online there's you can google implicit bias um and like or do I have biases and you can learn and you know it's we live in a culture that's sort of like is based on bias. So it's, it's not like anyone's fault that they have them. It's kind of cultural, but you know, it's our duty to reflect and try to overcome what, you know, we may have learned throughout our life.
0: Right. Yeah. Christopher, you talk about, um, about people getting, um, buying into those biases, be getting buy in, buying into those labels, right? When we talked about, you started to talk about how um, people elevate themselves, but how do we elevate ourselves or how does it happen on a broader, more, more cultural level? How do we say, you know, this one political party is better than this other political party. This race of people is better than that race of people. How does that
1: happen? How do they, how, do, how does it, how do people get sucked into that? Well, you know what, when it comes to the history of the Holocaust, I, right from the beginning, when we go to the first chapter of my workbook, I tell my students, Adolf Hitler did not invent anti-Semitism. The cornerstone of modern anti-Semitism happened thousands of years ago. It all started in a land far away with a carpenter that the guy called Jesus and how he died. And the death of Jesus, and who got blamed for it, became the epicenter of what will become modern anti-Semitism. There was a belief that the Jewish people had killed Jesus. It, It is completely myth. There is no possible way. All the evidence points against it. However, there was a situation. Jesus lived in the Roman Empire. The Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus. And the first followers of Christianity, they couldn't blame the death of Jesus on the Romans because they're living in the Roman Empire. The Roman authorities would have absolutely gone right after the, these group of people and, and crushed them. So because they can't blame the Roman authorities, they had to blame somebody else. And that's where it started. They blame the Jewish people because the relationship between the Roman authorities and the Jews wasn't that great to begin with. And if they shifted the blame of the death of Jesus over to the Jews, the Romans became, mm-hmm. you know, more complacent about it. It got written mm-hmm. into the Christian Bible, and right from there, it started. If, and and the main thing to remember is this. Because it's in the Bible, and if you look in the book of Matthew, you can, um, you can read the book of Matthew, and you can see how it could be interpreted in the way that the Jews killed Jesus. Because it's written in the Bible, it was taught as doctrine by the church for a very long time. Oh, wow. The Catholic Church did not come up with a document until 1965. It was called Nostra Aetate, And it was a document issued by the Vatican that says, you cannot blame Jews in the time of Jesus or the Jews today for his death too late unfortunately that was in 1965 so from the very beginning until 1965 it was very different and after nostra Aetate came out many protestant churches also came out with their own with their own doctrines that you cannot blame jews Jesus. but again the issue was for centuries it almost was doctrine to believe this because if they killed jesus then who is their god who do they even? And according to medieval church theology, it has to be Satan. And this belief that the Jews had worshipped the devil caused so many centuries of absolute oppression by the Jewish people. Um, There was many different examples I could talk about very quickly with you. There was something called the blood libel. It was a belief that to make Passover matzah, Jewish people had to take a Christian child and murder it and use its blood. Wow. It was among people who just didn't know any better. um, There was des- the, the theory of desecration of the host. The theory that Jewish people would take the host, wafer for use the Catholic masses and rip it up or take a knife through it. Desecration Because in the Catholic church. When the priest blesses the host, it literally becomes the body of Christ. So to desecrate it, it is to go against God itself. Wow. During the, and, Probably one of the most infamous examples of the hardships that Jewish people had to go through in the Middle Ages occurred in a German city called Nuremberg. During the Black Death, the Jews of Nuremberg were accused of poisoning the wells. In the world where, you know, it's the 1300s, where religion is everything, where science is not yet advanced, everything happens, people believe it must be from God. And Or, or if it's bad, it must be from the devil. And with the Black Death and a third of Europe's population dying out, it was a belief this must be from the devil. Well, who are the devil's disciples, according to their old theology? The Jewish people. They were blamed for poisoning the wells intentionally to get people sick, get people to die. A few of the Jews were tortured into signing confessions, and so the Holy Roman Emperor told the people of Nuremberg that they can dispense with their Jewish population. They took all all five to six hundred Jews of the town outside the city, and they burned them alive. Uh. They tore down their entire neighborhood. They destroyed their synagogue, and in its place, they built what is today the Hauptmark, or main market square of Nuremberg. Um, Adolf Hitler was very, very conscious of this past history. And so during the Third Reich, the place where the Jewish ghetto had been that was destroyed by the Germans was called Adolf Hitler Square during the Third Reich. And it became a very, almost a spiritual center of Nazi Germany because of it. So history has a lot to do with what happened in the early 20th century with the Nazis and the Holocaust. Um, Anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has been around for centuries. And it's those centuries, those one generation after another, and their beliefs of anti Semitism that led to the Holocaust. Now, before I, I do want to point out that before Hitler became very uh, famous in Germany, the German Jewish community was highly integrated. Um, they were one to maybe 3% of the population, highly integrated. Many of themselves thought of, thought of themselves as Germans first and Jews second. 12,000 German Jews died fighting for Germany in World War I. And what Hitler was able to do through propaganda and indoctrination was to really arouse the anti-Semitism back up again that had not been too prevalent in Germany up until that point. Um, Germany was considered one of the more tolerant nations in the early 20th century. If we went to a nation like Poland a hundred years ago, it would be much less tolerant than Germany was. But Germany, after World War One, had a horrible, horrible time. They lost the war. People just couldn't get over it. People believed in the what they call the "stab in the back" theory—that it, what the German army was not defeated. It was liberals and socialists and communists that stabbed us in the back. And unfortunately. Many early leaders of the Communist Party in Germany just also happened to be Jewish, and Hitler is really going to uh, seize upon that and really bring about the anti-Semitism because of that. Um, pol- look, guys, if you thought politics in America was bad now, <laughs> let me tell you guys, it can get worse. Politics in uh, post-World War I Germany was a lot worse. Every political party had to have their own private army just to keep order. You had to, you had no choice because if you didn't have your own private military force, the other political parties would come, they would disrupt your speeches, your events. You had to have your own security. They went through a horrible hyperinflation period where their life savings was absolutely destroyed. And then here comes a guy like Adolf Hitler. And he basically says, if you join our movement, I'm going to change things. I'm going to make sure that hyperinflation where it costs you 30 billion marks now to buy a loaf of bread, we're going to change that. We're going to make sure you have a job. We're going to make sure the economy is stable again, and we're going to make sure that humiliating defeat we suffer or one is going to be erased. And on top of that, he put absolute hardcore anti-Semitism into his ideology, and it was a combination of telling people what they wanted to hear. And telling them it's not their fault is what drove people towards this movement.
2: And, and you know, you, you mentioned something so important, like <laughs> using propaganda. He was able to convince people that we can treat a whole, whole entire you know group of people completely terribly. You know, using his words, using the way he he spoke about Jews, using certain language, you know, dehumanizing language, that kind of thing. He was able to keep allow I imagine relatively good people to kind of embrace the worst parts of humanity it's shocking and that's why like the language we use when we describe other groups when we when leaders specifically describe other groups is so important because the words they say affect our perceptions of other groups and kind of and thereby, our treatment of other groups. Like anti Semitism, you just said it, it wasn't really that alive in Germany, but one man was able to kind of re, reinvigorate that because of, of the way he spoke, the way he spoke about Jews, you know? And we have to be very aware of that as people and not let that happen when we hear leaders do that.
1: Hitler wrote a book called Mein Kampf,
2: mm, yeah.
1: And in his book, probably the most important chapter to really analyze is chapter 11 called Nation and Race. He creates a very frightening picture of what the Jewish people are, incredibly frightening. And in this chapter, he tries to give some sort of legitimacy to what he wants to do to the Jewish people by basically creating them into this frightening frightening force that would really scare people. And from what he wrote in Mein Kampf, it then got integrated into every significant piece of Nazi propaganda that these people only want to destroy us. In, in essence, he wrote in Mein Kampf that the goal of these people is to, to destroy Germany, and what's the only thing that we can do as a group to make sure this doesn't happen? We have to get rid of them. And in essence, I mean, it's much longer of story. I I shortened it, but in essence, that's what he attempts to say is to try to legitimize what he wants to do to the Jewish people. And my students and I, we analyze some very significant pieces of Nazi propaganda. We, we um look at a film called Yud Um, It's an infamous, it's the most anti-Semitic movie you could ever watch. Um, It was filmed in 1940 and it became like a blueprint for how Hitler wanted the German people to view the Jewish people. And um, it was so full of hate that the director, beat Harlan, was the only film director in Nazi Germany to actually go on trial for crimes against humanity after the war. Wow. They found him guilty, and as part of his punishment, they had to take every copy of this film and destroy it. And he did that under U.S. Army um, supervision. Now, 15 years later, they found an extra copy, and because that, we have the film today. And it is, again, it is the most anti-Semitic film in the history of planet Earth, but it's important for us to analyze because it's the blueprint of how the Nazis wanted the German people to view the Jews. We also look at a book, a children's book called The Poisonous Mushroom. It was published by a very notorious Nazi called Julia Streicher, And in essence, the Poisonous Mushroom had the same message as the movie Yud-Sus did, just for children. How these people were a frightening force that would scare you and the only solution to make sure that we were no longer frightened and threatened by them was the removal of them. So please please don't forget that Hitler came to power in 1933. You could always argue the date of when the mass murders happened. There is no pivotal date. But the, the the real killing started when the war started by nineteen thirty nine. So there's a whole six year period there, where the Hitler and the Nazis are conditioning the German people to become accustomed to what's going to happen in the future. And again, my my students and I we, we spend almost a year discussing what I'm talking about. It's yeah. it's a very very in-depth story.
0: So when you so so. This really, it, it makes me curious when, when it, it took them that long to kind of change the ideals of the citizens in Germany to, to really get them on board and saying, okay, mm-hmm. you know, this, entire, this entire race of people's got to go because they're cause, they've caused us, they've caused our distress. And all of the, the propaganda um, that you've talked about, how does that translate into U.S. history? That, that that some of that came here. I mean, when when you talk about when you talk about um, uh, not just not just at the time, but that kind of rhetoric, that kind of propaganda, and some of the actual examples built the KKK, didn't
1: it? Oh yes. Um, there one I, one part in Mein Kampf that Hitler really really gets. Incredibly racist is he writes how the goal of 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 Jewish men is to again not, not first of all I want to point out Nazi racial ideology is very very complicated. But I always tell my students never try to make sense of it because Nazi racial ideology does not make sense to begin with. After the Civil War, one reason why the Ku Klux Klan was founded. Was this incredibly racist belief that somehow African American men wanted to go to bed with white women, and to protect white women from this evil force, we had to defend them? And it's one one incredibly ugly racist belief of you know why the the Klan was formed in the first place. Hitler basically took that idea and put it in his ideology. Um, in this case, it was Jewish men wanting to go to bed with German women with a goal. And he said their goal simply is to breed the German people out of existence. Therefore, Germany will become a Jewish nation. The German people will disappear into history. And that is how Adolf Hitler tries to legitimize the Holocaust. If we don't do this to them now, they're going to get us. So it's, it's us first.
0: So I had my very complicated facts then. <laughs> I thought story. it was, I thought that some of the ideals of the KKK came out of uh, German history, but you're saying it's the other way around, that that
1: Hitler took Look, his the whole. The, the, this is, it's not just from U.S. history. That whole incredibly racist theory, um, has been around for centuries. It's been yes. around in other cultures at other times as well. Okay. That's really interesting.
0: I, uh, I, the, I, and and I know we're kind of we're running short on time, but I do want to talk about current event and and how yes. all of the kind of we're stuck at home. You know, we have a lot of time to pick sides. We have a lot of time to decide what group we belong in. We just have um, politics is a very big spectacle, but there's also a lot of other individual issues that people get on board in what can what can you say about how a, how people are using uh, modern social media uh, in similar ways to how um, propaganda was was used in um, uh, in German history in the world war okay
1: in America in 2021, our media is really broken down into ideological lines. In Germany, after the First World War, every political party had their own newspaper, their own media outlets. And in in America today, it seems to be very, very similar how there's media for this one group of people that believes this, and so on and so on. The problem that we have is when we only listen to one of those media outlets. And we surround ourselves with those that only think like we do. It creates a very intolerant atmosphere towards the other side. I'll never forget um, when Hurricane Sandy hit. I w- my house was out of power for six days. I stayed over at my cousin's house, and my cousin loved to watch a certain uh, a news channel, and uh, they were talking about the 2012 presidential election, and it seemed like if you just watched this channel, it would seem like that the candidate they were endorsing was going to win in a humongous landslide. That maybe one or two people out there might be voting for the other guy, <laughs> <laughs> but it was the other person they were endorsing was full, absolutely going to you know destroy his opponent in the election. And that's the issue that we face today. We watch one news channel. We hang around friends that only think like us, and it gives us an impression that could, could be very intolerant and dangerous. And as I mentioned earlier, one thing that we do as Americans, we are tending to put the other political ideology down. And that's what's really driving a lot of the people apart today.
2: Well, oh, you know, one thing that's really interesting, I just want to add, is I recently read something about how Google has personalized search engines. Basically, what I, be, no, have, considering my history, considering what I believe, Google knows obviously all this stuff, right? So uh, if I search something, I will get actually different results come up than somebody who has maybe like a different political ideology. So when we say we're living in different realities, it is really true. Like I am reading, like I we can Google the same thing, but based on where we live, based on our like past history and what Google thinks we like to read, based on the news places that we frequent, which represent our probably political, we'll actually get two completely different versions of the Google search results. So this just goes on to, to. so here I am thinking like, like, you know, like I, I'm a huge like cl- climate advocate. So if I search something, it'll all be like very like Pro, like, you know, pro-environmental legislation, blah, 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 pro, like, federal regulation, that kind of stuff. And I'll, and I'll be, like, and obviously, like, very, you know, pro, like, climate change facts, you know? Somebody else who's, who's not really into that, they make it something else. And I might be like, how can you not? Like, how can you think this? Like, don't you know all this? And... They don't because their search engine's actually giving them different information, you know? So they don't actually like read the same stuff as I do. And what, I mean, they think what they're reading is true. I think what I'm reading is true, you know? So, but what it's really just doing is confirming what Google thinks I want to know. And um, it's actually creating, really creates like this, these extreme political beliefs, like, like it just creates extremism in, in both both directions, you know, and that continues to allow us to kind of like judge the other group because we're just like, oh my God, they're crazy. How could they not agree with me? Look at it. Look at everything like, you know, Google is showing you or like, you know, I, I'm reading it's obviously like I'm obviously right, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I think part of it is is just like the nature of how we interact with the internet. It's, it's really terrible. and. I, you know,
1: The biggest burden that I have is we're really in a battle for the truth because the biggest burden that I have is combating denialism in my class. There are millions of people, not just around the world, but in the United States that deny the Holocaust. I'll never forget, I went to Barnes & Noble one time and I was searching for the travel book of Poland because I was taking my students over to Poland once again. I wanted to get some new ideas and I opened up to the page on Auschwitz. And somebody had taken a pen, crossed out the word death in death camp and put in the word labor camp and then wrote in the margins of the page, it's a myth.
2: Wow. God, that's crazy. It's
1: absolutely crazy. (laughs)
2: Like, that's
1: mind-blowing. And the whole purpose of my workbook and understanding why the Holocaust happened is also to combat that denialism For my students to realize and understand there's no way that you know the Holocaust didn't happen. There's no way Adolf Hitler didn't know what was going on. Um denial Holocaust denialism comes in many, many, many different forms. Um on my YouTube page, I, I usually have to police it a lot because there's always random comments. Of, comment. I, I've been I I have I've been called a lot of things on my comment oh, page on YouTube. Um It's no, I don't, I don't, I don't give a second thought to it. All I do is block user, delete comment. I don't think anything of those people. And I've, I've, I've been called a lot of names, but I do want to point out to everybody that you are entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. The Holocaust did happen.
0: And, and, and that's and that's true um, of of anything, you know, and and I, I really I really um, I really definitely believe that you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own fact. And science changes facts. History doesn't. Uh, yeah. So so those are those are strong. Those are strong and very, very wise words. Um, and we'll put links to your uh, YouTube on our um on our podcast page, when we when we publish oh, you. Uh, today's episode, and uh, hopefully people will um, want to learn more about the Holocaust and and will be inspired uh, by your words tonight and your uh, and uh, and the stuff that you teach. I think it's really fantastic your achievements in the community and um, uh, the insight and inspiration that you have, Christopher, are fantastic.
1: Well, thank you. I I, I welcome monfield to please to watch and learn from my in-class field trips. Hopefully you'll learn something that you didn't know before.
2: I'm definitely going to check that out for sure. That's that's awesome that you have that available for the public. I also want to mention that, you know, like all of us can't really take your class, even though it sounds so amazing and we can't really get to, you know, maybe visit Auschwitz anytime soon, but, we all do have a chance to listen to the stories of a Holocaust survivor. One Montville is putting on an event February twenty third at seven p.m. Um, you can go to the One Montville Facebook page to get more information. Um, the or just the website. Uh, the seminar link is bit.ly forward slash Toby T o b y Levy L e v y. So bit bit.ly forward slash Toby Levy. Just join at seven p.m. on February twenty third to hear her incredible story of surviving Holocaust. Um, and you know maybe it'll you know we won't be able to experience all the things our students get to see, you know, live, but it's still it's gonna be an incredible story and who knows how many chances we'll get to do that.
1: Thanks for that bunch. Yes and I hopefully all my students will be able to attend on Tuesday. I've told them all about it. It's their chance because I, I implore everyone as as if you can please attend because we are reaching an age in which we're losing these people every day.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know the the youngest survivors are you know even if they were just a a small a toddler they're almost 80 years old now and that's the youngest
0: yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. we're we're running out of time to get the information from them that we still can and um we're 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 lucky to have people like you christopher who help um help facilitate
1: that well thank you very much i wish i could tell you more but in the past 45 minutes, I basically had to condense September to June all together. You've
0: done really well to do that. We really appreciate you having you tonight, Christopher.
1: Hey, it, it's my pleasure. I could I could speak forever about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tell from the things that I've said, uh, and I always tell my students from the first day, it's like this is a class on Holocaust and genocide studies. Now, there are very few times in the year that we'll end our stories with, and they lived happily ever after. Um, you know, my course is like a rated R <laughs> course. You know, because yes. I, I don't believe in sugarcoating the Holocaust. No. If I did that, I feel I would be insulting the survivors by giving a version that's not reality, and I would be insulting my students by not telling them like the way it is. And so, like yeah. we, there's no, we don't hold back in my class. My <laughs> students, we yeah. get to know as yeah. much as
2: we can. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of this. I think this conversation no was an extremely important one for kind of all of us to be. I hope so. Kind of <laughs> to to okay. think about, yeah. So, thank
0: you. Uh, well, thank okay. you so much. I bid you both a good night and um, we'll talk to you all soon. All right. Thank yeah. you very much. And thank right. you very much. It's
1: good to meet you. You too. You too. Bye. You too. I'm right Bye. Bye.